0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and are you ready for episode 57 of the Adventures and Advising Podcast? Today, Ryan Chuckle from Texas Tech University is back as he interviews Dave Lockby from the Open University and Ben Walker from Oxford Brooks University. And I get to chat with Dr. Larry High and Dr. Danny Dory from Cal State San Bernardino. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well as follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures and Advising. Now, let's get to episode 57. Hello there, and thanks as always for joining the latest episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. We are well into April. UCAT just finished their virtual conference earlier this month, and Nakata is halfway through their region conferences at this point. So lots of conferences and professional development opportunities that are going on. This podcast just recently hit 23,000 downloads. And after posting about this on Instagram, we received a question from Casey Gregerson asking, What is the most popular episode? So of course, my answer would be that the most popular is the one that as a listener, you've not only enjoyed the most, but have gotten something out of and something that has either inspired you in the work you do, something you learned that you took back to your work or institution, or something that created a conversation starter, or maybe it's all of the above. Now, since the start of this year, the most popular episode so far by downloads has been episode 50 titled Elevating Advising Through Empathy and Care. So if you haven't, go check that out. And of course, check out all the episodes of this podcast. So onto our first interview of this episode and joining the podcast today as a guest host is Ryan Sheckle as he interviews Dave Lochte and Ben Walker. Enjoy. So last episode, we had Patricia McMillan from Ontario Tech University co-host and interview Sally Garner from University of Oregon. We're doing that again today. On this episode, we have returning guest Ryan Shekel from Texas Tech University back with us. Ryan, how are you?
1: Good, how are you doing, Matt?
0: Well, like Toby Maguire's Peter Parker character says, trying to do better. <laughs> so. <laughs> Last time we were chatting about the art exhibition that will be happening at the Nakata Annual Conference in Portland this October. But today you're back on to have the interviewing duties. So, Ryan, I'm super excited for this interview. Take it away.
1: Thanks, Matt, for having me. I've never been on this side of the questions before, so hopefully I won't mess it up too much. Um, We have some great guests, uh, that's for sure. And I'm excited to talk with Dave Lockie and and Ben Walker today. Um, Dave is the operations manager for the personal advisory service at the Open University which provides targeted one-to-one support for student populations identified in the institution's access and participation plan. Dave is chair of the UK Advising and Tutoring Association, or UCAT, which supports personal tutors and academic advisors across the UK, as well as co-chair of the Association for Peer Learning and Support, which promotes best practices and student-led learning. Dave is a qualified teacher and co-author of Effective Personal Tutoring in Higher Education. He's worked in student services management roles at the University of Derby and the University of New Orleans as well as serving as elected director, trustee, and governor of the University of Roehampton and Ormond University Students' Union. Dave is passionate about student voice, engagement, and student success. Welcome to the podcast, Dave.
2: Thank you, Ryan. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Sure. Ben is a senior lecturer in educational development within the Oxford Centre of Academic Enhancement and Development at Oxford Brooks, Brooks University, where he supports colleagues to gain fellowship of the Higher Education Academy. Deliver staff development and undertake educational research projects. Previously holding positions at the University of Lincoln, Manchester Metropolitan University, and the University of Derby, uh, Ben has supported a wide range of trainee teachers and existing practitioners. Ben has been program leader for the postgraduate certificate in learning and teaching in higher education and been invited keynote speaker at national and international conferences. As co author of books and journal articles on personal tutoring, Ben is at the forefront of professional development and research in the field and is committed to developing it further. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was reading your bios from uh, this new book, uh, Personal Tutors and Advisors Companion, uh, Translating Theory into Practice to Improve Student Success. So congratulations, uh, number one, um, uh, on the the publication. Uh, But you also worked with a third um, editor uh, on this text. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how it came about um, and, and the, the background for the publication.
3: Yeah, so thanks so much, Ryan. I suppose, yeah, at this point, I wanted to give a massive shout out to um, our third party and co-editor who uh, can't be with us this afternoon because um, Andy Stork, or Andrew Stork, to give him his official name, he is the kind of ideas man, to be honest. So uh, <laughs> without him, uh, we wouldn't be here. That, that's really true. So um, a massive shout out to Andy. He's uh, been a, a great person to see the sort of opportunity uh, that existed in the literature, the gap in the literature. And I suppose him being a marketing lecturer, a, uh, a gap in a business opportunity as well, I suppose, in those terms, um, to see the need for this book. And the, yeah, how, how it came about, I suppose there's a long and short answer. And if I give the long answer, that's probably going to Uh, tread on the toes of the following answer about our sort of background. So the brief answer, I guess, is that um, it's aiming to be the companion to our 2018 publication, which you mentioned in Dave's um, biography, which was uh, a handbook, really, a handbook underpinned by research for personal tutors and academic advisors, um uh but that was written, authored by four of us. So the three of us already mentioned and Emily McIntosh, who's now at Middlesex University. But what we really strongly wanted to do is kind of give it give that text a kind of real world application specificity, um, I suppose. And that led sort of Andy being the ideas man and us uh, developing it further to say, how about going out to the sector in the UK? and saying, what about real-life case studies in institutions um, where they hopefully have applied the themes and concepts of the 2018 book, and we can get them all to write a case study and sort of evaluate it and, and hopefully get it published. And amazingly enough, it ended up happening.
1: Yeah, it's super exciting. And and we'll definitely talk more about the book um, uh, through this, this podcast um, episode. But you know, as you get to know folks and you get to hear their stories, oftentimes you find access points from you know personal journeys or experiences or uh, roles at institutions or whatever. And so, I want for our listeners to sort of um, set the stage for that, Dave. If you could tell us a little bit about how you got into higher education um, and what your current role is like at your institution. Thank you. Yeah,
2: so um, I started off working in higher education uh, at graduation. I was elected as uh, um the vice president of my student union which I, I don't know how entirely that translates to um, American inter- international institutions uh, but I, I led the student union for a year um, elected by my peers and uh, when after that I became a, a teacher and I was working in primary schools which was great fun and I loved working with um, with young children but I always had in the back of my head that um, uh, universities was where I'd really got the interest in education so I returned back to that in 2008 uh, worked at the university of Roehampton and uh, really what ties everything together that I've done from that point on um, is supporting students. Uh, I've done it with various different role titles. That kind of my my officially my role was this, and I did all of those things. Uh, but I felt like I was student facing in every role, or managed people that are student facing. And then you respond to what, whatever the challenges in front of you at different points. So I've done that from being part of an academic department directly related to a course. Um, I moved had the the opportunity, as you said, to work at the University of New Orleans, where I worked as a student success coach and counselor. So uh, really working with students one-to-one. When I returned to the UK, I've done uh, work at the University of Derby um, managing student voice and peer-assisted learning uh, which I'm, I'm very passionate about, and uh, then finally now the, the Open University, which for for anyone that doesn't know it is a um, uh, an organisation which is almost entirely online, and our our students are from across the UK. It's a, the largest institution in the UK, and we have a large population of students that you might describe as being. Um, uh, disadvantaged or to have barriers to higher education and the kind of purpose of the open university is in the name to be open to them Uh, and particularly my department is all about uh, supporting those students through advising coaching and mentoring and uh, facilitating student success and so it's through that that I've got involved through organizations like UCAT and then on to NACADA as well I was fortunate enough to go to the um, uh, Las Vegas uh, Nevada um, conference a few years ago which was an amazing Amazing experience. So I've always been with the work that I've done with Ben, the books that we've spoken about. Always looking towards the states and internationally when we've had the opportunity to do so, to really learn from all the things that. Whilst we have differences, there's there's more that we have in common, uh, and it's supporting students. It's the heart of all of that.
1: Certainly, and um, I know that Vegas, 2015. Uh, was uh, significantly um, larger uh, than any other conference I've been to. Um, and I know on this end of the pandemic, um, sometimes it's hard to imagine uh, those days and, and what they look like. But, but I'm curious, Ben, about your background and how you got into higher education as well as your position at your institution currently.
3: Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Well, I suppose my story starts 20 years ago, although um, I've actually been only been in higher education properly if you like since 2017 so it's actually a lot more recent but prior to that I was in further education which I guess is going to be community college in the states probably Um, so yeah about 20 years ago I've been in teaching about 20 years Um, I did my teacher training while I was working in a bookshop Uh, well let's go back a little bit even further so I'm an English um, I think we might have some common ground here Ryan but I'm an English uh, graduate I did ancient history then I did a, an MA in English literature and masters and then I did that thing where I kind of drifted into should I do a doctorate a PhD and didn't have the time didn't have the money or the inclination at that point slight regret there but there you go so of course what you go and do you go and work in a bookshop for 3 years um which is what I did and nothing against working in a bookshop because it was good in many ways but a friend a very good friend of mine Uh, from the masters who I'm actually in a band with uh, still um, as middle-aged men. He said, you know, maybe something a bit more stimulating for you. I've just done the teacher training. I know you don't want to work in a school, which I never did particularly. Um, Nothing against school teachers again, but I never really desperately wanted to. But he said, I've just done the teacher training for um, uh, post-compulsory education and training. So what we would call further education or community college and I think you would like it. And I didn't get in on the year he did it. I did it the year after. So I did my teacher training then got and got a job at Chesterfield College. I live in Sheffield and Chesterfield is about 10 miles south of here. Um, and I got a job as a full time English teacher eventually. And um, after doing that for full time, full time English teaching for about seven or eight years. Um, I became well, rather grandly, more, more sounds more grand than it was, but head of English, basically, the head of department, which is not quite as grand as a head of department in HE, but nevertheless, um, I had a team of people uh, under me um, whilst teaching alongside, uh, but being a manager. And then it's those strange twists of fate that we always talk about, don't we, how do you get into advising? No one seems to have decided uh, one day, I'm going to get into advising. It happens in some strange Uh, as I say, sort of twist of fate or some strange happening. And in my case, it was a bad thing that hopefully turned into a good thing in that um, effectively I got made redundant or my role got made redundant whilst at the Sheffield College, which I was then working in as a manager, um, a manager within curriculum, within department. Um, And effectively, they reduced the number of roles I effectively got made redundant. And within two weeks, I had to apply for um, a job well sorry I was encouraged to apply for a job at the same level called learner success manager which was in student support and experience and and I got that job so that was in 2011 and at that point uh, the link to advising is coming um, coming soon at that point we uh, that job was brand new we had a a team of um, staff under us who you might call professional tutors or Uh, you know, under a centralized personal tutorial system, um, so more like primary role advisors in the States. And uh, we manage those people. So effectively, in the college, we had to, or we were given the task of implementing a centralized new tutorial system in the college, which was, you know, in equal share, challenging, daunting, scary, and exciting. Uh, And and then what happened is um, a guy called Andy Stork, who's already been mentioned, um, in 2013 got the same position as me so there were three of us fellow managers and I'd known him from when he was a business teacher and I was an English lecturer um, and he saw uh, rather an opportunity a gap in the market um, uh, and a gap in the literature to sort of well, we've, we've um, implemented this new system it does seem there is a real need here to sort of um, help people out with uh, the professional development of um, personal tutoring and, and advising so that gave rise to a book that eventually got published in 2015 for the further education context, which has its kind of revised editions. Uh, They're not officially called that, but they're kind of counterparts in HE, which is this book we're talking about today and its predecessor in 2018. So uh, that's what happened then. Um, Around that time, I was a student support manager um, in a college, which was very, very interesting with loads of social problems walking through the door. And it was kind of mine and my staff. Um, job to see those students in very challenging circumstances through their through their studies so we learned an awful lot um, at the time but at during that time as well I got into teacher education which is um, effectively teaching the course that I had done you know back in sort of 2001-2002 and so basically that was higher education but located within further education. so what we call higher in further education here in the UK. And that was in partnership with Sheffield Hallam University. And, you know, as time went on, I was looking to get a a full-time role within a university. um, And I saw a job rather nicely um, advertised for a research position or working on a national research project into personal tutoring, which was rather handy um, at the University of Lincoln, um, working with three other universities, just a two-year contract. But that's how I got into um, uh, HE in the first place. And as those two years started to come to an end, um, I was applying for teacher education jobs, but this time, you know, uh, within HE. So uh, things like teaching on what we call here the postgraduate certificate in higher education, which is the qualification that uh, all lecturers basically who want to teach within universities in the UK either need to have as a qualification or be working towards You know, once they are with us. So those are the jobs I went for. And then through various different um, temporary contracts and fractional, you know, part time situations that we all know and love. um, Working at Manchester Metropolitan University and Derby, um, doing that wonderful thing of having half a job for uh, well, having a job for one half the week and another job for the other half the week. And everyone thinking you've got one job in one place and you feel like you've got two full time. Eventually, I managed to get um, fairly, re- very recently, actually, you know, a full time permanent job in doing something very similar at Oxford Brookes University, which is located in a um, academic development unit, um, which has a bit of a history and reputation in what we call academic development, which means supporting trainee teachers. And through that time in HE, at the obviously at Lincoln, But then in the subsequent jobs at Manchester and Derby and at Oxford, I've always had a hand in for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, the overview, the institutional, um, implementation of, um, academic advising or personal tutoring, which as I'm sure we'll come on to in the UK is, is something that's, um, is a constant need. Let's put it that way. We're certainly not there yet. Um, hence the work we're doing in this area. Um, and at the same time, um, Sorry, within the last few years as well, I've been um, alongside Dave uh, in the leadership of UCAT, which um, I did for a couple of years. I was Vice Chair Professional Development and then just Vice Chair for UK Advising and Tutoring um, under David Gray and with Dave and Emily uh, until my term expired um, about a year or so ago. Um, And in that time as well, I I put together the, um, the Tutoring Matters webinar series that we have for UCAT, which has been... Uh, a really good sort of source of engagement, hopefully, for for all for all uh, members. And then, obviously, David Gray's taken that organization on in massive ways in terms of the professional standards and professional recognition and all the stuff he's doing as well. So, yeah, that's me up
1: to date, I think. You know, I know we um, had the opportunity to be in the same spaces um, not too long ago, but it feels like it was so long ago. Um, Sheffield in 2017 at the Nakata International Conference – uh, Plymouth in 2019 at the last in-person UCAT conference, uh, which I enjoyed tremendously being a part of. Um, if you wouldn't mind, Dave, uh, tell us a little bit about your, I guess, the the takeaways um, that you have on this side of, of leadership and on this side of planning uh, conferences. Uh, currently, the UCAT conference is going on virtually right now, as we were discussing earlier. Um, you know, Talk a little bit about your experience with with UCAT, with Nakata, and the role that professional organizations play in your professional identity and your development.
2: Yeah, I've always thought that um, it's important to have that uh, working with colleagues across an entire sector and international sectors as well Um you have colleagues that you work for an institution and that's important and you share that but I think it's always good to step back in everything that you do uh, and that's why I wanted to work with Ben and Andy and Emily on the books it's why I got involved with with UCAT and um, as the organization formed around about 2015 and um, and I found that through going to conferences like those uh it would when you step back you really you, you find your people you find people that you've got things in common with and it's not that you don't have that in your day-to-day job but just that passion for student support was what shone through and I always felt when I came away from a UCAT event and then later in a CADA event that um there was that commonality with people that we're all there for students and we all take things on and are very passionate about that and that just really spills into the conferences and the the keynote speeches are excellent the um uh, uh, workshops and presentations are excellent but I always found it was the conversations in between those that I got almost the most value from from all of the different people because you're hearing about day-to-day practice and uh, as you said before that um, uh, the Vegas NACADA conference was on another level for me it was numbers that I'd never imagined could happen in a conference we don't have as many advisors and tutors that we, we could get at a UCAT conference and it was really fantastic to see that many people with a shared uh, interest and different passions and you could choose between lots of different sessions and really hone in on the things that, that kind of work for you. And um, going to the NACADA international events that you spoke spoken about um, before, uh, just hearing. It was great to hear it across the pond from the US and from the UK as well, but also internationally, uh, because uh, advising means different things to different people. We touched a little bit on the fact that we tend to, to use the terms personal tutoring and they're, they're very similar, they're exactly the same. Uh, so always for me, hearing those different interpretations, because th- there's definitely no best way of doing things. There's lots of different types of good practice. Uh, so I've seen that through those NICADA international conferences, had the opportunity to travel uh, to Beijing with, with NICADA colleagues and seeing how um, uh, other other countries um, view advising and what impact they seek to have with students. And I guess we've all seen in the last few years the, the impact of going online um, the benefits that that can bring, both in our wider world, but then also in our conferences. Um, it's meant for me that there's certain barriers to me going to conferences which, which don't exist, of geography and expense and time and things like that. Uh, but we have missed out perhaps on some of those maybe late night conversations that you might have at a conference where you can have a drink or two maybe and, and discuss with people and really kind of find out what it's like to be in the other person's shoes a little bit more and people speak very candidly so we've tried to keep that going uh, when we've had online conferences i guess as we move into the future we're trying to get a bit of the best of both worlds so that people can um get across those barriers and can engage with things but don't we don't lose that human sense of kind of that that direct interaction that you have with somebody that you, you have in an in-person conference. So that's where we're at with UCAT today, uh, at literally having our, our conference at the moment. We're online at the moment, uh, but we've got a, an in-person event taking place in a few weeks time, which I think would be good to to start to get people to to see each other face-to-face again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about preparing to talk with both of you about this. I've had multiple opportunities to understand the different terminology sets Uh, the different perspectives, Um, but then to see how much really is common, how much we do share, especially the focus on student success and um, the different types of needs and concerns that students bring to advisors and tutors. But uh, the majority of this podcast audience is uh, U.S. uh, or North American advisors, and we've had uh, other guests from other countries on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to signpost or flag up a couple of uh, podcast episodes. Number 22 um, uh, is uh, our, our mutual friend, David Gray, CEO of, of UCAT, um, but also number 37, episode uh, 37, um, our friend Ann Bingham. Um, uh, she shared a little bit about her experience and her background in higher education and, and how she approaches uh, personal tutoring but uh, i'm i'm curious ben um especially since you mentioned the history background um and and your background in uh, approaching the sector of higher education um from further education um the term tutoring in the united states um usually is supplemental or additional instruction often individualized um around a, a course or a subject um or a, a specific um learning focus is there an easy way to s- explain sort of the heritage of how personal tutoring came from the tutorials structure um, for folks who may not understand the difference between, say, lectures, tutorials, seminars, and so on in a U.K. setting?
3: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I'm not sure there's an easy way, but <laughs> it's, it's an interesting one. The history of it is interesting. We, we try and do a very, very, very potted history um within the beginning of the 2018 book where we even sort of look at the uh you know dictionary definitions of tutor etc and coach and all the rest of it quite interesting but it it sort of you know goes back to oxbridge in a sense and the, the you know the dons um at, at oxford and cambridge and the tutorial system then so you're, you're talking about centuries ago because it is quite interesting in the UK. It's seen almost personal tutoring and he's just this is a kind of newfangled thing and you're like uh, no hang on (laughs) this goes back as long as higher education goes back and so it's quite sort of important to emphasize that whilst at the same time maybe acknowledging we've changed a bit since then it's not quite the same as turning up to you know a glass of wine or whatever with your tutor in an in an oxford college in the quad or or whatever um (laughs) But, uh yeah, I mean, when you look at it, it does go back goes back that far and in in that um sort of history we we look at um the sort of idea of the university and over the centuries leading up to the sort of twentieth century that that idea of a sort of personalized learning approach has arguably always been there, and then it's been you know in the last few decades sort of um really seen as sort of outdated and and not fit for purpose, and there's been an awful lot of kind of uh, reviewing of the situation and and what this thing is and a lot of confusion if we're honest and lack of clarity and it's really sort of waxed waned in terms of it's um, the emphasis put on it but the, the debate is a complex one, because what you're saying, Ryan, is, is really, really true, because if on the one hand I'm saying it's always been there, and on the other hand we're saying, hey, look, there's a single personal tutoring, it doesn't get any attention, why is that? And I think it comes back to something, a debate that you go, a discussion that you can go round and round on, which is about the relationship between, in UK terms, personal tutoring and teaching. And um the premise for and that's a, it's an interesting debate because you could say well the books we've produced and the development the staff development and the stuff we've written about and the papers we've got out there is it just all part of the wealth of literature that already exists on teaching approaches and the answer to that of course is well yes and no you know it, yes it partly is but the, the the problem is that um the premise for this stuff is that i became a teacher um And I had this thing on my timetable called personal tutoring that having done my teacher training, no one had prepared me for whatsoever, really. So therefore, okay, i had been trained in teaching. But how come I have to then do this thing that is arguably an aspect of teaching? So the same and yet different. And that's uh, I think we call it that in the introduction to this latest case study that it is got it's intertwined with teaching. It's got a lot of common with it. And yet it has some distinct features. And if I turn up as a new teacher and then you get to the job. And, and my manager, who was a great manager, by the way, but my manager and close colleagues don't really either tell me anything about it. Then surely there is uh, something missing here. So um, that's what the gap we're trying to fill. It's the gap that um, you know UK is trying to fill. It's the gap that we've tried to fill with with the books, with the staff development that we have associated with it, with with various of the initiatives that we've we've tried to um, start off. Um, and I guess therefore, what's missing is. Um, to to go back to your question about to how to differentiate it maybe I think what you're asking how do you differentiate it from other aspects of an academics practice with students then it is an emphasis on the on a on the whole student it's an emphasis on the journey of the student it's an emphasis on the pastoral aspects um, of students that again you know and and what it is as well is the reason for keep on going on about personal tutoring and advising and trying to define it and clarify it is because it tends to, like I said, when I got, was a newly trained teacher, or or when we appoint lecturers or teachers, they just have a line in their job description that says um, you will do personal tutoring, generally, and that's it, with no kind of what that means. Whereas the teaching thing has a load of sub bullets under it saying you know marking, assessment, um, curriculum development, teaching delivery, you know. What but what should those sub-bullets be for personal tutoring and advising if we're going to really going to take this seriously? And it's a timetabled activity. And then I think what's happened then is that's gone hand in hand in the UK anyway, with a real change in the student body. So, you know, as I mentioned, I've got a further education background where you have behavioural issues, you have discipline issues, uh, there's a lot of social problems there, there's a lot of, um, what am I trying to say, diverse issues that students present with that we have to support. And Higher education has increasingly mirrored that for obvious reasons, because the further education students of today are the, you know, higher education students of tomorrow. So therefore, what you've got is a bunch of academic higher education staff who may have been in higher education for 20, 30 years when this stuff wasn't really paid much attention to. Uh, the, the student body has changed. There is a, a diverse range of needs that we need to support students on and the, and the staff development has not kept pace. With those changes that have happened, so yeah, I guess that's a sort of long roundabout way of answering your question. That it's all those things that 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 we know kind of come into your classroom, that impact on learning, that we need to be support, um, that we need to support students with, that we arguably aren't necessarily very equipped for. So. It's a sort of Venn diagram situation where there's a big overlap between personal tutoring and teaching, but a lot of that personal tutoring stuff to date has been somewhat undeveloped, which is hopefully what we're trying to address.
1: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, having uh, received the book and, and read through it, definitely the themes of students or student populations comes out, especially in a case studies structure, um, because everything is situated in in actual practice, even if they are in, in some ways um, made academic for the purpose of a case study. Um, they're real people in real situations, uh, addressing real personal tutoring matters. And and I really appreciated that thematic nature, but also the structural element of case studies. Um, you talked a little bit about you know how it came about and how Andrew recognized the 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 thing that was missing, um, and then also the opportunity to provide a companion to the 2018 book but you uh have done something that i don't know i know a lot of people are working on um but i don't really understand fully you published a book in the middle of a global pandemic and i would imagine that that experience um even as editors um was was unique in many ways, something that just like it sounds like sometimes advising and personal tutoring, um, nobody's really prepared for. Um, but I, I'm curious, um, about your experiences in the, just getting done the, the, the making of a book, especially during the last couple of years, um, what were, what were some of the surprises that came from being a part of this process? Uh, Dave, if you mind going first. <sighs>
2: yeah no problem at all um I think it was surprising we touched a little bit on how how much we have in common despite because we focus on how like the the diversity of the sector and the diversity of the students that we're uh, we're supporting all of which is is true um but reaching out to uh to colleagues to to get their views on different things there's not a case study that went into that that i couldn't think of as relating to my practice on a day-to-day basis there may be people that, that work in an oxbridge environment uh, oxford cambridge and um, there may be people that might work in a um, uh, what we would describe as a post-1992 institution which uh, are traditionally more diverse um, but uh, Everything that I've found um, through reaching out to colleagues within the sector is that we we can learn things from each other. Um, And I I continue to do that, even though there's uh, I would be on what you might uh, term a professional services side. There are colleagues there who are writing from being primary role academics. And I found that I learned a great deal from them as well. Um, And it just From that diversity, we did find those common themes. And that was the highlight for me, really, in doing the book. I wanted to look at having done the 2018 book, which I really describe now as what we think was going on in the sector at the time, based upon all of the literature. And we read up lots and lots. We all gave our opinion. We've all been working in the sector for for 10, 15, 20 years. um, And this is what we thought was going on. But we can really say now that there were 150 applications for people to, to put, things into this book we we ended up with 50 authors um uh being writing parts of it 25 different case studies um just amazingly diverse but the common themes i found really really interesting so kind of grouping that into how we were adapting to as you say uh, a change in um everything really over the last couple of years. And it, when we look back on uh, writing this book or editing this book, um, we can't get away from the changes that we had. We did the call for proposals before lockdown and received uh, lots of submissions for for chapters just as we were going into that, that period. Um, but uh, as the, uh, they've actually been written, the case studies, and we've then edited it and gone through the editing processes, we've done that as the sector has been reacting to, to this huge change that's kind of unavoidable. Uh, and that does come out in the case studies. There's lots of them that talk about how they adapted to it. Uh, and yes, as you say, like kind of writing a book, um, whereas previously we would do meetings online because Ben lives an hour away from me. But we would also, we got together before lockdown and went through all the different case studies and things like that that and we we haven't got a chance to do that in the last so that pretty much the entire process from that point on um myself ben and even andy ben and andy live closer to each other but the vast majority of it has been done online uh, we haven't had the opportunity to uh, meet up and have a beer to celebrate it coming out which is something we i think would definitely like to do otherwise and these these case study authors that we've got to know really really well in some respects and we've gone back and forth and really been hands on with kind of the case studies uh there's still faces on a screen to us at the moment and um, so hoping that we'll get that Um, first really in-person conference where we can get to see them a little bit more um, as we look back on the the changes that have happened over the last couple of years so I think that as we got to the latter stages of the book when Ben was writing the introduction I think it was very much forward um, looking as to see uh, okay so there there was what we did before, 2018 covered that pretty well, there was what we did in this interim period, what we're going to do in the future, what are the the good things that we did before um, but what are the things that actually we've improved upon uh, and how how is that going to shape our um, professional practice going forward and that's why I think the book to me I, I can say this because we edited rather than writing it I think it really is so important to hear what's been happening in the sector from all of these excellent colleagues over the last couple of years because I feel like there's been more change in the last two years than there have been in the previous 10 and it's it's a challenging time in wider society for many reasons but I I feel it's a really exciting and interesting time to be working in higher education, to be supporting students uh, as they go into a a, a working population that are facing different challenges to anything that's gone before. Uh, So yeah, it has really shaped what we did with the book, Um, but uh, I'm really optimistic about how that could have an impact as we go into the
1: future. So Ben and and Dave, you know this too, but um, I'm going to direct my question to Ben. Um, Part of the reason I'm even speaking with you right now Uh, is because my crazy brain made a connection between the publication of a book and the release of a blockbuster film. Um, In the scholarship of academic advising and tutoring, um, you know, it's not particularly common, even though I think um, our associations and our colleagues have done a lot of excellent work in the last couple decades to make it much more frequent that a book is published on our field. Um, but I was uh, at an annual conference, um, and the Academic Advising Approaches book, the, the the teal one that's on my shelf back here behind me, um, was the first of three, so the first of a trilogy. Um, you can see where the Star Wars stuff is coming in. But um, it was released, and, and I was uh, the nerdy person who was standing in line to get it signed by the authors who were in, in attendance. Um, and I was looking back at that conference, that annual conference breakfast and how many people were missing it. And in my world, if if, uh, if a major movie came out, if a, if a Star Wars film would come out, it was a big deal. Everybody was talking about it. And at a conference about academic advising, a, a big thing had just been released. A, a book had just been published, and it seemed like people were disinterested. Um, and we talked a little bit beforehand about the place of books in the scholarship of advising and tutoring. And, and Ben, I'm curious, you know, your experience of having been involved in, in multiple publications now. Um, where do you see this specific publication, its place in the scholarship of ad- advising and tutoring, um, but then also um, the, the nature of um, books in general scholarship as well as far as publications go? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking
3: the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes.
1: So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast.
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Ryan, and it's one I've, I've had to... I've been forced to sort of grapple with actually, because we have, a <laughs> um, not necessarily always wanted to, but, um, we have a route in the UK to, to doctorate actually to PhD, um, called PhD by published works or PhD by publication. And, um, maybe in hindsight, I should have chosen a different route, but I, <laughs> when I first got into HEA, I was encouraged to take that route. Um, you know, where, alongside we have things like professional doctorates and obviously the, um, uh, the sort of traditional uh doctorate by thesis phd by thesis anyway i was i was encouraged to take that route and so therefore i'm sure i would have thought about um thought about this anyway but therefore i've i've been forced to sort of spend a lot of time thinking and almost justifying how um things that i've produced and and me and other authors uh, co-authors have produced fit in ha- how much they count um and i think one of the reasons, well, um, what am I trying to say? Um, some of the ways in which then they they don't count are kind of institutional. So I hope overall the big picture is that these publications count in that people will use them. And that actually, in terms of this companion text, one of the most heartening things has been, obviously, to see how people have uh, talked about in case studies how they've used the ideas from our 2018 book so they're being used so they count in that sense but from an institutional perspective and almost like he you know almost political perspective i i agree with you that they often get sort of neglected or forgotten whether intentionally or not i don't know but maybe it's explained by the kind of institutional or wider sector politics to do with research funding and to do with impact factors and to do with in in the UK, something called the Research Excellence Framework, which we now have the Teaching Excellence Framework as well, you know, that brings in money for research. And it does – the the things that we've produced for the, – the books we've produced for critical publishing anyway do not fit neatly into that um, gold standard or, or accepted format that academics or, or maybe because of that wider institutional and sector perspective have, they don't really – sort of notice them unless they are national or international peer-reviewed journal articles or academic monographs. Um, as Dave will know, we've had loads of uh, interesting discussions with Emily about is, is our book a monograph and real, you know, real navel gazing stuff where you think you need to really get back into the real world and real world problems. But as I say, we've been forced to sort of consider these things. And it is an interesting question. Um, when we looked at it, the monograph just meant a sort of, you know, what does it mean in terms of an original contribution? But a traditional academic monograph, again, again, it tends to be more sort of empirical research-based and our uh what we have at the sort of other end of the spectrum i suppose that can be a bit dismissed by people or forgotten by people maybe unintentionally is what we call in the uk practitioner texts which are more sort of practical handbooks you know pick them up um and they can be somewhat dismissed by certain academics because they're not necessarily based on primary research and um You know, who makes up the rules here? I think it is a very interesting debate that we probably haven't got time for. But um, I think our books in particular um, sort of sit in some grey area between maybe those two extremes in that they are practitioner texts. You know, we have a bit of first person in there. Uh, We address the reader directly, which you wouldn't necessarily get in an academic monograph. However, they're also underpinned by a lot of uh, research, desk-based research, you know. And then these case studies obviously are based, some of them, on the primary research of the case study authors. So they're a kind of hybrid mixture of those things. And I think that might be one of the reasons they get possibly um, a bit lost. And so, you know, we I say, or we say, sorry, in the introduction to the case study collection, that it does sit within the literature in the sense of... Um, You know, we found a niche, hopefully, we found an area where there was a real need. Um, And in the UK, you had a 2006 publication, which, again, is a book, but it's a collection of um, chapters written by certain individuals that, as as quite often can happen, the precursor to that was a conference. And then that led to a book. So in 2006, Liz Thomas and Paula Hixenbaum, and Liz Thomas has done the forward for the 2018 book and this new book um they brought together that collection in 2006 then since then you've kind of had really sporadic and intermittent contributions to the literature but and and mainly been in the form of peer-reviewed papers um but they've been on uh, nothing against that because I've, I've published in it myself small-scale institutional research and not a lot of which um goes so far as to sort of have uh, you know evidence the impact uh, the outcome of personal tutoring on students. Then obviously we tried to sort of fill the gap in practitioner texts underpinned by research with the 2015 book which was called Becoming an Outstanding Personal Tutor, and um, for further education and then t- in the 2018 book. And then alongside that within the literature you've had the, you know the UCAT um, developments as well. And then in particular, as as you all know, you know Wendy Troxell um, and Emily. And Dave and Lisa, Lisa Rubin, you know, doing the work on the, the global analysis um, of literature, which is that really sort of important piece of work going forward. So it's great to see that sort of interplay between the two. So hope uh, interplay between the UK and the US, that's what I was going to say, and that this global analysis is being done. So. I see it as, and then what's great about that last piece of work that I've mentioned as well is that what Wendy has done there is, is, you know, really appreciate the massive complexity about how you judge the literature in this field. Like I mentioned about the intertwined relationship between teaching and personal tutoring, you could argue there's a wealth of literature in this area, depending on how you define it. But, you know, I still keep on coming back to know there is this gap because there is this gap in specific emphasis that is needed in practice. So yeah, hopefully it sits there um, in a, it has an important place, I hope, within the literature and maybe some of the ways it doesn't always, some of the reasons, sorry, it doesn't always get picked up on. Is, is it because it doesn't fit within that format that maybe a lot of people um, just gets so used to recognizing that somehow it doesn't fit neatly into that and therefore doesn't always get picked up on. But hopefully, uh, a, you know, a timely and important contribution in some way, nevertheless.
1: Certainly. And, you know, I I think one of the things that um, your response typifies is that even a publication in um, advising and tutoring demonstrates how there there's this sort of third space. We have some friends and colleagues, um, some of whom you mentioned, who are working on uh, and have published uh, around the concept of third space professionals and integrated professionalism. And, and this notion that sometimes the existing structures aren't the best fit for what advising and tutoring is, what advisors and tutors are and what they do and what student needs are in those spaces. Um, and that maybe a third space is the best way to contextualize it. Um, it. But it that was one of the things that I noticed not only, um, in the introduction and in the foreword to the new book, but also in our conversation so far is that at times there can be these, they, they seem like contradictions uh, or perhaps they're more like paradoxes or whatever. And I was wondering if you had a particular favorite one um, that either came out of the book or this has been part of your, your life as a as a uh, professional tutor or whatever, That that sometimes it seems like this, but then sometimes it's like that. Um, the the sort of paradoxical nature of it. it I think um, our friend Oscar Vanden Vindgaard might refer to that as like really resting in praxis, right? Like there's these two sides and it's the interplay that matters most. Um, but I didn't know if you had a particular favorite or, or one that really was resonating with you from the experience of this book or just in general, uh, Dave.
2: Yeah, well, we had uh, a couple of quotes that we've been uh, looking at as part of the the book and uh, things, one of them, which didn't go into the the published version of the book, but it was kind of a, not a mantra, but I guess a quote that was in our minds, uh, which was um, the cause and solution to all life's problems, um, which the original quote is uh, talking about beer as being the cause and solution to all life's problems and uh, is referring to uh, Homer Simpson, uh, if you know it. But we kind of spoke about that being, how advising or tutoring sometimes is seen um, and that uh, uh, when there is, uh, in the UK it would be that there's a teaching excellent framework that comes out, there's a student survey uh, and institutions are trying to make the students a lot more happy, make them succeed more, oh the solution to that is is this, um, it can be advising and tutoring but when, if it's not happening then the problem kind of rests, rests with them and um, certainly something in the UK uh, that it's not, been um the established field perhaps as much as it's becoming more and more in, in the states uh, where it's got that research credibility um alongside the practitioner and that's what i guess we've tried to to do to to kind of navigate between the two of them and um, to make sure that um when we we've quoted all the literature we've read everything that's out there we've read the international sources we've read some of the things in the UK and that's what we put into the 2018 book and it's very very well referenced within that um but at the same time we didn't want it to be kind of a, a dry academic uh, thing that people would read we would want it to be people to pick up and to um uh, go back to before a session with a student after a session with a student and to hear as part of the book launch when we um uh, the book three or four weeks ago that somebody said about the 2018 book they said it had been their bible over the last um three or four years and that was really the, the best thing that I think we could ever hear as uh, as co-authors of that book uh, I want to see, it's great to see if somebody's had the book um, uh, but we're definitely not in it for the money because you don't make money in publishing, as I'm sure um, uh, colleagues listening know, um, but we're there for the impact that it will have and if we can see from somebody that actually that book is a bit of a state because they've been going back to it and when they have a meeting with a student and um, they they find a certain uh, section of the book that they'll go back to afterwards, um, so that's kind of what we've, I, that's why I feel comfortable, in, most comfortable in that third space in between the two of them because like like Ben, I've um, gone down various different routes of considering a PhD and done, done some classes in the States to, towards one. Um, and I want to have that uh, academic rigor, but I also want it to be something that's actually going to have an impact upon um, uh, real-life students. When I've spoken to, to colleagues about doing kind of PhDs and they said, well, you could do it in anything, you could go into something else. Or, well, actually, I, I want it to have an impact in students. That's that's the point of it. Um, and that's what we're, really we've done with with the books, is to try and make it so that it can be that solution to those problems, that on an individual level, uh, a practitioner would think, I'm facing this challenge what can i can I do to to go overcome that to get around it um and hopefully the the two books most recently the the one which has got those those case studies they will draw upon uh the the real life examples of other colleagues who've come across similar challenges uh in the sector and uh, have seek to overcome it together uh, because we, we tried to add as editors really that rigour to them um, to make sure, OK, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to the wider sector? What's the impact? It's great that you think this has happened. I'm not doubting for a second that it has. But but how can you show that? And that's what really we spent 18 months with the the authors kind of working through. And that's why we're really proud of where they've got to with each of the case studies, because I think they really do show honest, real solutions that they at an institutional level have found uh, and really had an impact upon students. And I guess our job as editors has been trying to, to bring them all up together so that there's some uniformity in some things, but some respect for the diversity of the different uh, submissions that we got. Uh, so that from the reader's perspective, as they go through it, they can look at the different themes, they can compare from one to another. Uh, and some things they they might might strike a chord with them, they might think is relevant to them. Some things they, they might not feel is adequate. Relevant and they can put it into their practice on a day to day basis. Um, so that's what uh, I found. That, um, uh, are we the cause to things? Are we the solution to things? Um, I'm hoping we've moved towards being the solution, and that's part of what we published here.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, Ben, do you have a favorite paradox?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, it's a paradox. There's another word, it's funny because the the amount I've not done loads, but conference presentations, conundrum, that's one that seems to <laughs> crop up in the title of, end, ends up um, being in the title of some of my presentations that I've given to various conferences. And the reason for that has been something like tackling the personal tutoring conundrum is the title of one of my articles as well. And the reason for that has been probably what we've already touched on, which is... Um, why have we got something here, personal tutoring advising, that is absolutely central, should be absolutely central and crucial and yet receives so little attention? Um, and I think, you know, to answer that, it probably goes back to some of the things we've just dis- been discussing previously um, about its place and, and about people maybe not seeing it, um, you know, practitioners or managers maybe not seeing it for what it is. Um, I, the other, the, One of the ones that came out of the book that was a kind of favourite, I'm not sure it's... A paradox. I don't think it is. Um, but um, in terms of a quote and sort of to remember, um, and, and, again, and again, maybe it is a paradox, given what we've just said about how important this activity is. But one of our case, uh, well, two of our case study authors, co-authors from Manchester Met Metropolitan University, um, came up with, um, you know, when they talked to staff and students, they caricatured, a lot of them caricatured personal tutoring as two people in a room that neither wants to be in for a purpose that is unclear to both. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when they came up with that line, I was like, that's me. That's me 20 years ago as a new teacher. You know, that's how I felt. And that's how the student felt. And yet here it is on my job description, uh, albeit with no explanation. And here it is, you know, on my timetable. Um, And so it's, you know, not sure that's a, a paradox, but that's the yeah. You know, that is the challenge. Uh, and as as we've said, this is that's a key challenge, as Dave's already said, that we're trying to hopefully solve and make that no longer the case for both the student and the staff who who uh, is involved in a tutoring interaction.
1: Well, certainly having spent uh, the time that I have with the book and, and the previous book and the work that you've done, I know that the the clarification efforts are well underway. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate so much um, your time today giving us a perspective of just that kind of commitment to the community that have, that's being built, the uh, communities of practice, and, and refining uh, the important activity of personal tutoring and academic advising through scholarly efforts. Um, the, the personal connections and, and the conversations that we have the opportunity to have in these informal spaces um, are, are so valuable and so meaningful, but without the work of um, formal um, sharing of uh, scholarly perspectives, whether through presentations or publication, uh, whatever shape they may take, um, sometimes it's folks just talking about work. Um, but we have the opportunity, I think, as academic advisors and personal tutors to readily engage in these conversations. And uh, this podcast is just one of the many ways um, but I'm honored uh, to say that I have had the chance to get to know folks like you from all across uh, the world who do work that is very similar to and shares far more in common um, with the work that I do uh, than uh, a couple of words or terminology differences. Um, and so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, uh, Dave and Ben, and and uh, congratulations to you and Andy as well on this publication. I look forward to it being of use to me in my practice and for many more to discover it. Thanks for coming by.
3: Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Ryan. Great to be here. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Ryan, for hopping on to interview Ben and Dave. And that was a fantastic conversation and wonderful insight into UCAT and also their book, The Higher Education, Personal Tutors and Advisor's Companion. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, check out the show notes for the link. Now, the next two interviews are with some of the most student friendly faculty that I know. And both interviews are actually pulled from another podcast, but their passion and perspective fit right into this particular podcast. So, first up is with Communication Studies Professor Dr. Larry R. High. Dr. Larry R. High Jr. is a lecturer. And the internship coordinator in the communication studies department with an emphasis in public relations, strategic communications at California State University, San Bernardino. Prior to CSUSB, he was a senior communications manager for the Black AIDS Institute, the only national HIV AIDS think tank focused exclusively on black people. High spent 20 plus years as the chief communications officer for the United Methodist Church in five different regional offices in the United States and the International Mission Agency when it was based in New York City. He has lived in Boston, Washington, D.C., Sacramento, and Jackson, Mississippi. He has also been an adjunct instructor at Folsom Lake College. He earned an EDD in organizational leadership from Pepperdine University, M.A. in mass communications from Stephen F. Austin State University, and a B.A. in radio television from the same institution. During undergrad, he interned at the White House, U.S. House of Representatives, and the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Hyde describes himself as a fun and adventure enthusiast who is a foodie and loves to travel. He has traveled to six of the seven continents, 29 countries, and 47 of the 50 U.S. states. You can also visit him on the website, LarryHyde.com. Professor, Welcome.
4: Thank you for having me today,
0: Matt. <laughs> yeah, no worries, no worries. Yeah, I'm glad this worked out. Um, I know we've we met each other a few years ago. We have people that we both know uh, within academic advising. So uh, Amanda Roberts Mather, and when so, we go back to elementary yeah. school. I did not know that. So so I guess that might be my first question is, you know, so we have that connection with Amanda. How did you uh, meet her? So we know elementary school and how has that friendship developed over the years?
4: You know, we went to elementary school together in Marshall, Texas, at St. Joseph Catholic uh, School. And now through the the uh, miracle of social media, we're able to keep up with each other. Uh, and I know she is uh, out of the country, uh, in a position out of the country. And so it's it's been great to just follow her journey uh, as well. But uh, we keep up through social media, but we both grew up in in Marshall, Texas.
0: Yeah. And I know when you first started at, at Cal State Southern, you know, Amanda reached out to me through social media. I was like, you got to go and, and meet Larry and then... We met at one of the events and then we've kind of connected um, over those years. So can you talk about your path, your journey into higher ed, um, into teaching and eventually how uh, you wound up at Cal State San Bernardino?
4: Well, it's, a, it's a, a, a roundabout process. Academia is a second career for me. And so I spent 20 plus years as a communications public relations professional, a chief communications officer uh, in the United Methodist Church and in five different regional offices across the country and in our international uh, mission agency when it was based in New York City. So I spent 20 plus years uh, uh, doing that. Uh, and then when I was in Sacramento, I, I started adjunct. An adjunct professor at uh, Folsom Lake College because teaching was always something I wanted to do, and it was time for a career change. And so I began to look for uh, academic uh, positions, and uh, there was a full time lecturer position at CSUSB, and so I applied. So uh, I have the opportunity to teach students uh, what I spent uh, 20 plus uh, years of a professional uh, career doing. But uh, so this is a, a, a good second career. Uh, for I me. And it's been uh, so far so good. And it's been a, a good transition, I would say.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I follow you on social media and, and see really like how involved you are, like not only at Cal State San Bernardino, but within the community. And I'm just like, do, does does Professor High sleep at all? You know, <laughs> so it always seems like you're, you're on the go, always doing something. And um, on your website, there's a quote on there that says, Uh, My purpose is to help people find the greater good in humanity by celebrating what's right in the world. So I guess my question to you is what connects you with this quote um, and how might this connect maybe to some of the classes that you teach or just uh, to Cal State San Bernardino um, in general?
4: That is my uh, personal mission statement, and the personal mission statement uh, began from work I started doing in my doctoral program uh, at Pepperdine. I have an EDD, of course, you read in organizational leadership, uh, and the first semester you kind of spend uh, in that program uh, with your own personal leadership, and one of those uh, aspects of that is uh, is defining your personal mission statement. So uh, it came from that work, and there's the full personal code of ethics uh, that fleshes out on my website what that means to me. But it is... Uh, It is how I move and operate in the world. Uh, It is uh, uh, how I choose what projects I take on in the community. Uh, It's how I choose my career path. Uh, uh, It's how I say yay or nay to opportunities that come my way. Uh, uh, But it's basically how I want to show up in the world. And uh, in my business and professional communication course that I teach, uh, we spend some time starting with that process of thinking about uh, what it is that you are about uh, and how you want to show up uh, in the world uh, with uh, in that particular course. And so they began the work uh, doing a personal mission statement, although uh, this took some time for me, so it's not fleshed out, but we just kind of plant the seed. Uh, but for me, it, it, it's everything. It's, it's uh, how I want to show up in the world and how uh, I choose uh, what I will tackle. And so it doesn't fall within that, uh, whether that be career-wise, uh, whether that be community organizations, uh, I can say yay or nay because it does not fall within that, that personal mission for me.
0: Yeah, no, that is definitely a great quote and great life advice, whether it's a student or myself or like you, because it's your quote. Uh, I think that just it goes to all levels. And, you know, and we'll talk about some of the classes that that you teach, but you're referencing the doctoral uh, degree. And I know sometimes for students, you know. You know, as an undergrad, they're just, I'm just trying to get to get my bachelor's degree. Do you have conversations with some of your students about uh, to have them start maybe planting that seed, thinking ahead of like if, depending on what they want to do, that they might need more education, like whether it's a master's degree or going into a doctoral program?
4: I do, I do. In fact, uh, before uh, we jumped on uh, today, I had a meeting with a student who is planning—he's graduating uh, this summer and wants to take a semester off uh, in the fall and then enter into a master's program uh, in psychology. He's a communications minor, uh, but he was just asking for some of my advice of uh, how to maneuver that process, what he should be doing with application processes. But I always tell my students that uh, I think education is a is a great equalizer, and you know, eighty percent of our population of first-generation college students, and I tell them all the time, you not only change the trajectory of your life uh, when you you participate and complete uh, higher education, but you change the trajectory of your uh, family's life, and so uh, I try to encourage our students, if you go into the workforce, let's see what we can do to help you get into the workforce, into a career, a field that you are excited about, and if you want to go further into higher education, uh, uh, let's see how we can help you go for that. Uh, My doctoral program was not Plan per se. Uh, undergrad, I finished undergrad in three years, and so I kind of rolled into my master's program at the same institution. Um, uh, but the doctoral program um, was something that one of my one of my friends actually encouraged me to do. It was the after meeting parking lot conversation, and he was in this in this program. He started to tell me about it, and it was a cohort model, and uh, it was for working folks. And so I was like, this is a great opportunity to uh, to go even further uh, in my educational pursuits and explore leadership, uh, something that was totally different
0: uh, from communications. Yeah, it's it's funny to kind of reflect on that in a way where let's say that conversation never took place like hmm. in that parking lot, you know, and then it's like, where would, would you have still gone on to uh, the doctoral program? Would you have met with that friend later on sometime and then it still led you on that path or could have led you somewhere else? So I think sometimes we think, Oh, we just got from point A to point B, and it was like this direct path. And sometimes it was just this random conversation or mm-hmm. randomly meeting someone that led into a different conversation that got our interest, you know, to, to something else.
4: And it was a cohort model too. So then, even from that program, I have some folks who are lifelong friends now, uh, yeah. uh, who've helped uh, students uh, at CSUSB with various uh, projects and have been speakers in my courses. But then I have some just some lifelong uh, friends uh, from that program too, as well.
0: Yeah, and that's always nice with like cohorts and just having, you know, just networking and just talking to to other students and other folks and then that just turns into those lifelong you're saying lifelong friendships and those it's those are really really nice stories to be able to reflect back on and be like, yep, they became a good friend and they still are today. And uh, earlier you were mentioning one of the classes that that you teach. Uh, can you talk more about some of the other classes that you teach or what you're teaching this semester?
4: Well, I teach in our communications studies department, and uh, I teach in strategic communications concentrations, which was formerly a public relations. So this semester, I am teaching two sections of business and professional communication. Uh, I am teaching an advertising and social communication course. I am teaching uh, also our strategic communication campaigns course. Uh, And I've taught other courses in the uh, strategic communication Uh, track which uh, are public relations writing uh, as well as crisis communication. I'm also our department's internship coordinator uh, so I'm supervising about 15 interns uh, in the field of communications in various uh, industries uh, right now this semester too as well. So teach four courses and supervise about 15 interns.
0: Yeah. So it seems like there's probably a good chance that uh, some of the students within that, those concentrations might end up having you for multiple classes for their time at Cal State.
4: Uh, yes. Uh, and so last graduation back uh, in December was my first actual uh, in-person graduation and it was uh, bittersweet and it was moving for me I know as much as my students because uh, uh, a lot of still students uh, that graduated uh, from our concentration started with me uh, and we were actually in person and so uh, and a lot of them had their last two courses with me and so it was just like oh my God uh, uh, to see the growth uh, and they're going into uh, various jobs and they're going to knock it out of the park and so it was just like this is this is what it's about uh, uh, when they were walking across that stage I think I was it's exciting for them uh, and their their extended families uh, uh, that were gathered because I know uh, I know they they told me their various stories too on the journey. Mm-hmm. and so it's just it was a great full circle uh, moment uh, for me.
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby?
0: Yeah, it's full circle. And then they've gotten to know you, you've gotten to know them. And then they know that they can contact you if they have questions, or they just want to follow up and let you know, hey, this is what I've been doing after I've graduated.
4: Yeah, and they keep up on, uh, some of them from my, uh, uh, keep up on LinkedIn and social media, and so it's, it's uh, I think it's easier to keep in touch now with folks than, it, of <laughs> course, the, the miracle of social media than it used to be, and so, yeah, but they let me know all the time uh, what they're doing, uh, and I'm I'm, exci- I'm so excited for them. Yeah,
0: you know, back in the day, we had to physically write a letter and then put <laughs> it in an envelope and mail it out. <laughs> mail
4: it out, or pick up the phone and call. <laughs>
0: yeah, Oh, goodness, I actually talk to someone on the phone <laughs> versus just texting them. <laughs> so, I mean, you teach like many different classes. Do you have like a favorite topic or, or class that you teach? I
4: have uh, favorite portions of every class. I would say probably my strategic communications course is the favorite. Uh, it is, uh, uh, usually it's seniors for the most part. Some some folks within a semester or two, but most of the time it's the folks who are graduating. Uh, but that class, uh, they Self-select into teams, uh, and then they self-select in their teams a nonprofit to work with in the community, and they produce uh, for that nonprofit a full public relations campaign, and they execute a portion of that campaign. So at the end of this semester, we will have worked with about eighteen uh, nonprofits in the Inland Empire, but they get that real life experience, uh, and I like to just uh, I like to see where the aha moments go with the challenges, and then with the opportunities of working with nonprofits. The nonprofits range in size and scope of what they do, uh, and then also uh, in resources, what resources are available. And so uh, uh, that is a very hands on class. And so that's probably one of my favorites. Um, But then like our business and professional communication, it is uh, uh, you're learning stuff like resumes, cover letters. uh, They do a biography. uh, They start the work of doing a personal mission statement uh, and a personal professional uh, development plan. So uh, uh, I love to see just the aha moments that go off go off, the lights that go off uh, uh, on some of the discussions we have. And then, like, I'm teaching advertising and social communication. I love it. So, like, uh, we're going to talk about Super Bowl ads uh, and and in the context of just advertising and social communication next Wednesday. Uh, And then in the fall when I taught it, uh, uh, of course, it was political season the last time I taught it, so we looked at and political ads. And so, uh, uh, I'm a real-world professor. And so, like, I try to bring what is happening in the real world Make it relevant in the classroom, and and uh, also how do you plug into whatever the dialogue uh, that's going on in society? How do you how do you make that fit into your everyday existence and think about it uh, in a critical uh, in a different way?
0: Yeah, no, I I like that you very much. It's not just theory based. It's like how can we put this into practice and then really connecting it to the real world? Because sometimes I'll meet with students and. You know, their comment might be like, it's just hard for me to kind of grasp what I'm being taught. And in this case, like, let's say with some of your classes, you're connecting it. So for them, they can make those connections easier and hopefully easier, uh, easier for them to learn and remember that material and be able to apply it. So that's really cool.
4: And I take feedback from them as well, too. So Mm -hmm. like uh, at the end of the semester, we do this whole exercise. What did you learn? Of course, what would you change about it? And so even in the advertising course, uh, the first semester I taught it, uh, students were like, well, we talked about ads. We saw ads, but we never produced any ads. So why don't you have us produce it? I was like. Good idea. And so the next time I taught the class, now uh, they work in the process. From the end, the end, the last project is actually producing an ad uh, uh, in the framework and using the concepts that we've talked about uh, throughout the course.
0: I'm assuming already, if anyone is listening to this, they might be like, I wish I either had taken Dr. High or can I change my major and and take Dr. High's classes or maybe do a minor uh, in communication? So you might have, might have some some more fans here. And you are also the internship coordinator in the comm studies department. And, you know, sometimes we, you know, when we hear the word, word internship, or the term internship, that might make some people their anxiety jump. And it's like, oh, how do I find an internship? How do I know what internship to do? How do I balance that if I get an internship with the rest of my classes? Should I do it during summer or during do it during the regular semester. I mean, I know everyone's situation is different, but when you have those conversations with the student, um, you know, if they don't know where to start, how, how do you help them out with that?
4: I always try to start with the, the end goal. I believe, you know, uh, uh, with the Stephen Covey begin with the end in mind. And so try to figure out like, what is, what is your ultimate career goal? You know, what do you all, what do you have on your plate now? And so like, mm-hmm. I even have real conversations. Like I know I've had students who had multiple jobs or caregivers. And so like, what can you, what can you fit in? What can we let go of? Uh, and what is your ultimate in uh, career goal? And uh, helping them try to find internships that fit uh, within uh, that realm. Um, and so, I mean, we have students. Uh, I, I supervise interns for all of the all of the concentrations, and so uh, they vary as to what they do uh, in uh, those various internships. Um, but basically, I meet with them uh, three times throughout the semester. And we they work through a workbook, and they do a lot of reflection. And so, uh, at the beginning, uh, usually I meet. They've started. And so we talk about, you know, how's it going? Uh, and then one of the books that I assigned them is how to basically function on an internship. But it's a good book on how to function uh, in a actual job uh, business uh, setting. And so we talk about how it's going. Uh, what are some of the obstacles, challenges that you see possibly coming up? They reflect some throughout the process. We meet again midterm uh, and then uh, at the uh, end as well. And you know, they're always free to uh uh, my expectation if they don't have a resume is that we help them develop a resume uh, throughout this process and also always tell them, make sure you keep uh, the work that you've done so you have work samples. But I always tell students, uh, for me, uh, I am who I am and a product of internships, some, uh, some uh, great internship opportunities, uh, but i uh, I think now in this day and age, especially, you have to intern and get some experience in the field uh, to get your uh, foot in the door. And I'm passionate about internships. Uh, uh, I interned an undergrad at the White House and on Capitol Hill uh, in the summer prior to that at the 1996 Summer Olympics uh, in Atlanta. And so. Uh, I ended up doing I was a television major, uh, but I ended up doing PR, strategic communications uh, because of my internships uh, and a networking connection. I had through the church uh, suggested I get involved with this fellowship program uh, as I was graduating. Uh, and then next thing I know, uh, I've had a 20 plus year career. Uh, and yeah. so uh, I tell students, I've not planned this. Uh, I know that some people have life plans and t- this, this that's just not how I function. It's not who. Mm-hmm how I've maneuvered the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to kind of plan out like, what would I want to do in 10 years or 15 years? And then when I got to that market, like it never happened. So then I started thinking, well, maybe I I don't go so far out with with my goals and maybe we'll just see what opportunities, uh, opportunities come up. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how life is sometimes it's just things, just opportunities might happen, or you just might have that conversation or network. And, But I like how in your classes, like you're making everything kind of go full circle, uh, whether it's when you're um, an internship, uh, when you're working with those students throughout the semester, or if it's a class that you're doing the lecture on. And you've done a lot of different keynotes. You've been a keynote speaker uh, various times, and you've spoken on various topics, so related to racism, racial justice, and diversity and equity With these topics, are you able to weave those in into conversations um, in your classes or with your students?
4: Oh, yes. I don't know how you could not weave them in. No matter what subject matter you teach, race is woven into the fabric of our society. Justice issues are woven into the, the fabric of our society. So the advertising class, just to, uh, to think about it. So we last week talked about uh, sex and gender as it relates to advertising. We're going to tackle race. Uh, uh, so these are, are discussions that I think, naturally and logically happened. But then also, uh, sick, we are Hispanic-serving institutions. Sixty percent of our student population is Latino, Latina, uh, and another twenty percent of people of color. So I don't I don't know, for me, how uh, you could not have conversations about race, equity, inclusion, etc., and you are dealing with students of color who have to maneuver in a world uh, uh, that still does not necessarily uh, view them uh, in a dominant culture fashion and expects them to assimilate. And so how you how do you not have uh, conversations about race, justice, equity, inclusion, et cetera?
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's. Conversations that have happened over the years, but have seemed to be very much important, and a lot more than going—not just at our institution, but other institutions—over the last couple of years. Um, how do you feel CSUSB has done with having those conversations uh, with faculty, staff, and students?
4: You know, I appreciate. It. I always see the the various um, programs. Uh programmatic panel discussions, speakers that are going on, and I've tuned into some of them and they're, they're interesting. Uh, and I, they do, uh, spark, uh, dialogue. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I think, uh, CSUSB does a good job of starting the conversation and, uh, uh, we, we still have work to do is to figure out how do we, how we maneuver uh, in a society that is multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic and with the socioeconomic divides that exist uh, and the poverty that exists. And so we've got to uh, figure out how we do a better job of doing it. I think the converse, we are having the conversations, uh, uh, but we've got to start to shift to finding concrete
0: solutions to tackle uh, the conversations. Absolutely, yeah. It's going to be a continued work in progress. It's yeah. a work in progress. And then, kind of going back to like students and uh, teaching and faculty, do you think there's any uh, misconceptions that students might have about faculty, and if so, how do you address those?
4: Hmm. I don't know that, uh, I say for myself, like uh, in all of my classes, I do an intro day one of who I am. I tell you, you know, I'm a second career academic just about the things you read on the bio. I go more into depth with those. Uh, I know some of them follow me on Instagram. We're connected on LinkedIn. And so they know that, uh, uh I have, I love what I do. This is what I'm called to do, but I also have a life outside of CSUSB. So, uh, Uh, And I get questions about this. I know that uh, they don't necessarily uh, uh, have uh, some preconceived notion about me as a professor or or some misconception uh, uh, because I, you know, I share I probably share more than uh, some of my colleagues do.
0: Yeah. And I think that like you're saying, like when you start your classes, like you're talking about yourself so that that way the students get to know you. And I think that that definitely helps because I know some of the students that I meet with or conversations I've had with other advisors uh, about some of the the concerns that students might have is it's like an intimidation factor, you Mm -hmm. know, where they kind of maybe hold the, the instructor like they're either on a pedestal or something like they, you know, are they are they like me? Are they, you know, are they human too? Um, So I think you kind of let go of some of that anxiety for them, uh, basically by getting for them to get to know you. And they're like, okay, I understand this professor, I kind of get their personality. And that's going to help me be a better student with knowing what I need to do uh, for this class.
4: And I always tell them, too, that we all have life issues and things that come up like professors are not immune from that. So if you got some issue going on like you, you don't have to tell me what it is, but let me know. Hey, professor, I got an issue right now. I need an extension on that. Or can you work with me? Like, you know, we all have life uh, issues that pop up. Uh, and so, I'm, and even especially, even since we've been remote and been been at home, you know, uh, I realize I have this beautiful, wonderful, dedicated workspace. But I know everyone does not have that. You're in multi-family households. Folks are trying to care for children and. Um, uh, I even bring in speakers. Uh, when I uh, uh, I remember the first semester we went on uh, remote and on lockdown, I call it. Um, uh, one of my friends who is a journalist uh, at a major news uh, outlet, uh, uh, she is fostering two toddlers. She has uh, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I was like, you know, don't... I know child care is something that takes a lot of maneuver. It's like, don't get a, don't get child care. If you have to stop, I'll have some exercises. Uh, sure enough, about halfway through, it got quiet in the house and uh, she's a single parent. And so she had to go check to see what was going on. And then she came back. Uh, but like that, and this is the reality that folks are dealing with. So I want the students to see, like we are all guilt. She is a professional at the top of her gang, uh, fostering two little kids. And she still has to like uh, try to get, Everything done uh, that needs to get done, and uh, she's doing this lecture to you, and she has to stop because the little kids are are doing little kid stuff <laughs>
0: right <laughs> yeah, I mean these last couple years some some days it feels like it's gone on forever, other days it feels like it's it's gone by too, so fast, and then you know we were back on campus, and I guess during this time too, like what other like challenges or successes ha- have you witnessed w- with some of your students during these last couple of years?
4: I think our students are some of the most uh, resilient Folks that uh, I tell them all the time, you need to reframe your hardship and tell your story uh, because y'all are some of the most resilient folks that I know. I'm like the student I met with this morning. Uh, I know he's held down two jobs. Uh, He has had amazing grades, not only in my class, but has a great transcript and is a caregiver for his father. And so uh, these are the stories and the type of students have a lot of students who are single parents, uh, uh, but they are resilient and they are making it happen. They're making making life work uh, with all of the varied obligations they have, uh, and they are still uh, trying to pursue a higher education. I will say, I think as a society, one of the things that uh, I've seen with our students, I think that uh, uh, some of the the challenges they've had uh, 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 are exacerbated just because of the pandemic. And and one of the big, I think, root issues that we deal with, uh, with some of our, a lot of our population is poverty. Uh, and we as a society, society have, and I don't have the answers, have not uh, just tackled poverty, but I think a lot of challenges that our students have stem from poverty and uh, uh, generational poverty. And so uh, how do we um, find ways to work with our students, but then also with the family units to, to, to break these cycles? And I don't have the answers, but I think uh, collectively as a society, we've got to really start to, to grapple. Uh, with what that means, but our, our students are some of uh, the most resilient uh, folks uh, uh, that I have ever known.
0: yeah, I know 100 percent 100% agree, one thousand percent agree. What do you like about working at Cal State you know I, mean, I know one of the answers is probably going to be the students you know, but what 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 is it about cSUs being over these last few years now that this this is this is a great institution for me to be at? It's
4: definitely the students. I mean, uh, having 80% of the student population be first-generation college students. At graduation, uh, when they had uh, the students who were first-generation stand, it was hard to look around and find students who were not first-generation. And like I tell them, uh, you are changing the trajectory of your life, but the trajectory of your family's life uh, for generations to come. Uh, The photo behind me is my great-great-grandfather who was a freed slave. And so somebody post-slavery on both sides of our family, uh, they started to, uh, to tap into higher education and uh, we I come from a family of educators and entrepreneurs and so uh, my life I know is is has been blessed and uh, the trajectory of my life is such because uh, uh, the folks who came before me who were educated and made sure that I uh, I got uh, the best education uh, that was possible and that I was exposed to many different uh, opportunities throughout my growing uh, experience.
0: Yeah, awesome. And as we wind down with this interview, you know, you've had so many positive statements, you know, that I think can resonate with with our students. But uh, with this time left, is there anything else, any other message you'd like to to say to our students uh, if they're listening?
4: You know, I always tell students there are three three good things that I love. Three things that I love. uh, uh, Always make sure you got good ride or dies. And so uh, uh, the folks who are in in my inner circle are folks who show up with me. They've been with me uh, on mountaintop experiences when everything was going good, and they've been with me in the valley experiences when life was not so good and things were bad. So uh, find folks who know the real you and love you for who you are anyway and uh, who encourage you, but also who push you and challenge you when you're not uh, being the best that you can be. Uh, I always tell folks, too, and these are two bits of advice that I love. Uh, One of my friends, I remember posting one day, she says, every morning uh, I look in the mirror and I acknowledge my competition. And so I think that's a good thing. You're in competition with yourself. You have everything innately uh, within you to succeed uh, uh, and to be all that you can be. And then uh, uh, finally, I always tell the students to do you. Do you and make the world adjust, uh, and so uh, uh, live out loud, come in there uh, bold, uh, yelling out loud, and do you uh, don't make uh, folks uh, just uh, uh, put your light out and uh, hamper you down and put you in a box,
0: uh, but do you uh, love it? Absolutely love those. And last question, we'll talk about something outside of CSUSB is your hobbies. So, like from your bio. You visited a lot of states already, a lot of countries. You're a a foodie, a fun and adventure enthusiast, as you put it. Talk more about that.
4: Well, uh, the traveling, I love the traveling. Of course, uh, the COVID pandemic has put a damper on that. And so uh, I'm looking forward to uh, knocking out that last continent, Antarctica, uh, and then those last three states, North, South Dakota, and Idaho. Uh, I had a trip planned for spring break of March 2020, my birthday week two. uh, to Portugal. And so that trip, uh, of course, has to uh, be replanned. And looking forward to kind of emerging from that uh, this summer. My parents celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, so we're going to do something with them as an extended family uh, and just some other uh, opportunities. Uh, I love to uh, travel uh, uh course. And then I love museums. And so, uh, I get out and about, I live in Pasadena. So around the greater LA area, like in the past uh, month, uh, there's a great Tupac exhibit out there right now in downtown LA that I saw. Uh, I was at an exhibit at Pepperdine, the Kenzie African-American art collection this past weekend. Uh, and then at the, uh, Getty, uh, Western museum a few weeks ago. And so I love museums uh, and learning and we have a great opportunity in the greater uh, LA area and in the empire to, uh, do that uh, I love the outdoors um, uh, twice a week uh, at 5.45 a.m. to 6.30. I'm at Boot Camp Pasadena trying to uh, get some muscles. Uh, I like uh, hiking and walking. Uh, I'm training with my best friend right now to the friend who, uh, who uh, recruited me for that doctoral program to ride the AIDS Life Cycle in June, the 545 mile ride from uh, San Francisco to Los Angeles. And so I uh, have been doing some training rides for that uh, if you follow me on Instagram you, you you know I'm a foodie so I love mm-hmm. food trucks, I love holding the walls I love high end restaurants uh, it just uh, has to uh, be good food uh, and one of the things I always tell our students, you have to care about something beyond yourself. So uh, I'm uh, heavily involved within our uh, Pasadena community. So we have a little event uh, every year called the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl game on New Year's Day. And I just uh, received my 15 year service award. Uh, I'm a member of the Pasadena charm of Roses, the Roses, uh, the entity that puts on the Rose Parade uh, and the Rose Bowl. There are 935 white suitors because we wear the white suit uh, volunteers that make that happen. Uh, I'm an active member of the world's greatest fraternity, the Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity, uh, the Zeta Tau Chapter here in Pasadena, and I uh, lead our scholarship uh, efforts. We are Black men, and we award uh, several $1,000 scholarships to Black uh graduating high school uh, met, uh, seniors uh, uh, from Pasadena's public high schools every year or so. And then I participate with them uh, helping uh, lead our Father's Day walk and just several other of our initiatives. Uh, and then my faith is a big part of who I am. And so I'm an active United Methodist. Uh, go to a campus of the Hollywood United Methodist Church. Uh, called Harmony to Lucar Lake. Uh, I serve on our bigger leadership team for Hollywood UMC for both campuses, and I serve on the leadership team for uh, my actual campus too. Uh, and I preach sometimes too, not only at my church but in other churches uh, all across the nation. And so, uh, those are some of the things that keep me a little busy uh, outside of uh, CSUS.
0: Just a little busy, just a little. No, this was fantastic. I really love this interview. And I mean, it, it definitely did everything I was hoping to accomplish with this was, you know, to get to know different faculty. And I think this really allows students and uh, other staff and fac- other faculty to be like, let's get to know Dr. High and what is Dr. High all about? And I think we've covered so much in, in, in this time. And What's nice about Southern California is like weather is usually always great. So you're able to do, take care of all these things where it's riding, hiking, going to museums. And that's what's nice about being in the Southern California area yeah. is there's so much to do. And I like how everything for you, a lot of it connects to the campus. It connects to the community and everything goes full circle, so. Yeah, Dr. I don't see life know. as
4: boxes, but everything is interconnected. It's not, you don't know, put this in a box and just like, everything is interconnected.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Dr. Hyde, thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, Larry, for your insight, your stories, and your commitment to teaching and higher education. And I really do appreciate how much you give to your students. Next up is World Languages Professor, Dr. Danny Dory. I'm super excited for this episode today. I get to interview someone that I've known for many years and that is Dr. Danny Dory or as many students and staff, me included, column, Dr. Danny. Dr. Danny joined CSUSB in 2001 and served as a coordinator of the Arabic language program until 2016. He has been a member of the executive board for the Center for the Study of Muslim and Arab World since its creation in 2003. He teaches courses in Arabic language and culture and contemporary issues of the Muslim world. He has worked in the educational and nonprofit sectors for 30 years and is an educational consultant and frequently invited speaker for national and international institutions in the areas of language pedagogy, program development, teacher professional development, interfaith, and advocacy and education. Dr. Danny has received multiple awards and recognitions in the fields of teaching, service, and interfaith work. He also pursued his college education, uh, where he earned his bachelor's degree from Cal Poly Pomona, master's at UC Davis, and his doctorate at UCLA. Dr. Danny, it's so good to talk with you today. Welcome.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Uh, Your office is a very special and dear office to my heart. As you know, I love the students, and when I know that they need some advice, I manually walk them to your office because... Uh, you and the rest of your staff are just wonderful, amazing. Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, and you are even more amazing. Um, I just know pre-pandemic, uh, I always got to talk with your class, and and it was one that you had the class of in the evening time, which usually sometimes is they're not the most uh, students aren't don't have the most energy during the time. But when I would go and visit your class, they would be so energetic paying so much attention, had so many questions, and I think it just, it's a testimony to you as as a professor at this institution. And so I'm really great that you're here, that we get to chat today. And kind of connected to that is, there's a quote I found that you said, and you said, the CSU is the people's university, which means everyone has access to a once in a lifetime experience. So for you, how and why is the Cal State University system the People's University.
5: Sure, I remember saying this, and I am a product of the CSU, like you said. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree from Cal Poly Pomona, a sister school to cal San Bernardino. Even my brother graduated from San Diego State, which is also one of our sister schools. Uh, and I know how challenging sometimes it is for people um, to come and attend and, and uh, come to college. Uh, I was an international student, so was my brother. And sometimes it's hard to get into some schools that are a little bit more competitive, especially if you come from an area where you had war or not enough education. Um, So it is not only a people's university for those who are in the United States or in the community, but it is also for people who are uh, coming from overseas uh, who wanted to go through a mainstream channel instead of, uh, sometimes a little bit more, um, how would you say, uh, privileged schools or schools that are more selective and very competitive to get in. So it is, it is the workforce we are. We, as in the Cal State University system, produce the labor force: the teachers, the engineers, the uh, you know the people in law enforcement and healthcare workers. Uh, we are not a UC. We are not a research organization. Although I am also a graduate of two UCs, so it's not to bash them. But I really believe from experience in both systems, the CSU and the UCs, that generally speaking students get more attention in a state university than any UC. Not because the teachers are different, it's just because our mandate is different. We have to teach more, we have more experience of teaching, and we have to do less dissemination of information, less research so we can focus on what some of us like to do most, which is teaching and being there for the students.
0: And you know, you talked a little bit about uh, your educational background. Can you talk about your path and your journey into higher ed and into teaching and, and being at Cal State San Bernardino? Uh,
5: absolutely. Uh, first of all, I never knew that I was going to be a professor. Some people exactly knew when, when they entered college where they were going to be. Uh, in my case, I, that was not the pathway. Um, I come from family. Uh, I come originally from Lebanon, although I was born in the Congo, which is in Africa. Uh, my parents were not diamond traders because in the Congo, <laughs> there's the war of the diamonds, uh, but no, they were educators. They were part of the United Nations or the UNESCO, uh, teaching in a very small village. So mom and, my mom and dad were both educators, and my uncle, back in the 40s or 50s, got his doctorate degree. So when I say this, just to say that uh, going to college was not an option for me. It was around me. You know, all my uncles and aunts so all had the, their uh, their degrees. But they got their degree not because they were privileged in their communities. Uh, they were actually very poor. And my parents were orphan. My mom's father was uh was killed when she was young. Uh, he was carrying people's salary, so they knew that the only pathway out of hardship was just to get education. Because we didn't have the millions of dollars that could give us a different pathways. So I followed that legacy uh, of education and also higher education for my parents. Um, and I lived in war, and I always share this to my with my students because sometimes students say here in Cal State. But you know what? I have it hard that, that some people you know, are working. I said, yeah, I know. I know how hard it is. And I do sympathize. Uh, we have a lot of um, also responsibilities here, our community, for people to take care of their families. However, other people also who made it to the highest level of education also may have come from much more challenging times. I lived the civil war. I've lost a lot of people in my own family uh, uh, through the war. Uh, I was personally kidnapped, uh, you know, begged for my life. All of these are traumas. All of their are reasons for people to drop out of school. But it was never a reason to drop out. Uh, we studied under candles with no electricity, sometimes shortage of food. But that was never a reason to say, oh, we're not going to go for education. And then I came to Cal State here, uh, to Cal Poly Pomona, then UC Davis and UCLA. And I worked like all of our students. I lived in a van when I didn't have an apartment. Uh, I worked as a dishwasher, worked at the farm, Cal Poly, because I studied agriculture, so I worked at the Cal Poly farm. Uh, and I just worked like everybody. I, even in my master's and my doctor degree, I used to drive trucks in the summer to get some money so that I can pay for my tuition. So that was my pathway towards education. I thought I was gonna be in public policy, and I did work in public policy and consulting, but I think teaching was one of the uh, more rewarding and uh, uh, jobs that I got. And uh, by mistake in 2001, I got a call to say if they wanted to teach at Cal State, because they had hired a teacher who never showed up. So I came, I had an easy interview because they were desperate to get somebody. But today, Cal State is my home, it's my profession. Uh, the students and everybody, you and your own staff are my family. Uh, I love it. I won't trade it for anything else.
0: And I know when, when we first met, it's when I used to work in the admissions office. And um, during that time, one of the programs that I was coordinating was the high school university program. And I know with one of the Arabic programs that you were doing, that also involved getting some high school students um, in in that. And It was like a summer program, and it was one of the the things I always looked forward to is like during the summer, I was like, that's when Dr. Dan is going to come by, and I actually get to chat with him and get to process these applications, and it seemed like the students just, they gained so much uh, from that. And I guess that leads into that Arabic program. Um, How did that come about? Because that's something that you started.
5: Sure. So the decision to teach Arabic uh, came about before I joined Cal State. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it happened actually before 9-11. So there was a push uh, to teach Arabic as an important language, a language of culture, and also be proactive instead of reactive. So when I came right after the, the tragic event of 9-11, uh, there were classes enrolled, but no staffing. That's when when I said the teacher never showed up. Um, so I, I came and I started doing this. The program grew from a very small program, and then we grew it all the way till 2016, to be the largest in Western United States. Actually, we had more students, more faculty, and more funding than historic uh, programs that did have Arabic, some things like UCLA or UC Berkeley. We had more money and more students and more uh, sections, uh, actually, than than many other very prestigious and very well-funded, both public and private universities. Not anymore, there has been a little bit dip in the program, which is very sad, but uh, hopefully we can regrow it back again, uh, you know, one of these days. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a very enriching program and I encourage anybody to learn any language, not only Arabic, and also to think about uh, study abroad programs and intensive programs. Whether it's an intensive coding program, nursing program, or whatever it is, once you're focused for eight hours, Uh, We used to do it for eight weeks, for uh, 16 hours a day from 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock. Students learn so much more than they would do it if they were to stretch their education. So to all the students, please consider doing very intensive and focused programs.
0: And what classes are you teaching this semester?
5: Sure. So I have some classes that I regularly teach every single semester, including the one that I always invite you to, and you're always invited. As long as I'm alive, uh, this is your class to come. So we have a class on the culture of the the, known as the world of Islam, so the culture of the Muslim countries, both Muslims overseas, but also the Muslim experience and its uh, interaction with the rest of the community here in the United States. Uh, So this is uh, one of the classes. I also teach uh, some classes in Arabic language and also Arabic culture because Islam is something and Arabic uh, studies and cultures are something different because most Muslims are not Arabs anyways. Arabs are only 18% of the Muslims. So this uh, semester I'm teaching a class on uh, Arabic literature and translation, which means students do not need to know any background in Arabic. They can just come and then read in English things that have been translated from Arabic and at the, and the world of Islam. And sometimes I do teach actually Arabic language classes.
0: Is there a a particular class that's been like your favorite to teach?
5: You know, my students are my favorite. So whether I'm in a large class or a small class, uh, I love them both. I mean, I love both uh, classes and whether they're online or or in person, I also like them. I prefer usually face-to-face or virtual synchronous classes so I can see the students, uh, you know, behind cameras or or in class. you know, I, 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 there is there is a unique there is a unique experience to each one of the class. If it's a small class, you get the chance to know each student and go into depth, and then allow far more discussion opportunities and presentations. I like students to to present and show what they learn. Um, but sometimes when you have a class of two hundred fifty students, you cannot make two hundred fifty presentations. Uh, so there are two different strategies. But I, I think I like both. I like the big crowd because we learn from each other and I like the small one because you can go in depth and then get to know each one of the students very very uh how should say it, much more in
0: depth yeah and you're mentioning the different types of teaching so like the asynchronous synchronous online in person smaller classes larger classes and these last few years have been a whirlwind of change and and, and, you know, as, as a professor and and talking with your students and teaching your students, what have been some of the challenges and even maybe some of the successes that you've witnessed from your students during these last few years?
5: Sure. Uh, you know, students are resilient and very inspiring. Uh, yet we're learning. We're all adjusting, uh, whether we are staff or teachers. And of course, students are also Adjusting very well. well, they're adjusting. I don't want to say if it's very well. The pandemic is only well now by now two years, and um, there's going to have to be a learning process to maximize education. I think we all agree today in the world of education that the pandemic had had um, been a little challenge in terms of how much students truly require. Um, so one of the biggest challenges I find with the students is to say. You know what, the class is online, even if it's synchronous, that means that I can join the class from home or no no problem from home or from work, but while working, while shopping, (laughs) while getting my hair done, my nails done, my tattoo done. And these are not jokes, these are real experiences, because sometimes I ask students, like, where were you, or please turn on the camera, and then where you find the students is sometimes uh, it's at least authentic. You know, it's like, what? Uh, And students sometimes find it at the comfort of their beds. So you have students who do not shy away from turning their cameras, even (laughs) with a pillow and a blanket over them. Uh, So um, I think changing that, uh, I I don't want to say that mentality, but changing that uh, perceptions about uh, the importance of being engaged um, and taking education very seriously. Uh, I don't think students would take me seriously if I was in bed teaching uh, teaching from bed. Um, I do understand that the pandemic has imposed certain conditions on on some of us. Parents who have children in the same house, smaller dwellings where people do not have their own privacies, lots of noise that's going in the background. These are things we're gonna have to work out with, and I'm sure the future will will hold so much more uh, opportunities for us. Uh, but but students have 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 had a hard time. Uh, also, our own students—we are a commuter campus students—do not always feel that this, the campus is theirs. Uh, they're not as involved with clubs. Um, we are not uh, as certain private schools that have ninety-eight percent of its students residing on campus, where they are there all the time, even if they're behind the camera. Uh, so students have two lives. They have their work life, family life, and the, the university. I think that has been a challenge to connect with the students and tell them, look, we are here for you. We care for you. We are gonna do our parts. We're gonna work our 80 to hours per week, but please also do your part and also value your education. This is not a time to work 60 or 80 hours at Amazon, our local you know, employer. Uh, and And, say, I'm going to take full time load. I think the university needs to also be aware that students should not be allowed to over enroll when they are also overworked. Uh, there is a compromise in the level of education, and I don't know how to solve
0: it. It's, it's going to be an ongoing process, and you know to try to figure that out. and hopefully eventually we, we do find that that perfect answer to it. Uh, but I know we've also seen a lot of students adapt really well to like the the online process uh, w- with their classes and actually have ex- excelled a-, a lot with it and actually preferred it to be online. Not every student, but, you know, there are are those that um, have enjoyed to be able to you know do things from the comfort of their home um, or, like you said, on, on the go wherever and still be able to kind of get that learning in there whenever they can.
5: Absolutely. And Matt, let me tell you just one example of one student, although there's, these examples are very numerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the students who was always, always participating in class once was participating, and I asked her to turn on the camera. She said, Professor, are you sure you want me to turn on the camera? I said, yes, if it's not a bother for you. She turned it in, and you know, our campus is in Pond. Uh, we are in the main campus, so we're in San Bernardino, and we have a satellite campus in Pond Desert. So we have some students who are in the Coachella Valley who live there. And when she turned her camera, she was picking bell pepper in a big farm. She was so she was picking, and uh, this is a girl or this is a student who never missed a class, always participated, and she was inside the field picking bell pepper, turning on the cameras on her cell phone because she couldn't carry her whole computer, yeah. uh, making sure that she never missed classes. And um I had to, you know, we get the chance to talk to her a little bit more, and then she sent I asked her to know, send me some pictures. She's up every day at four o'clock in the morning, starts speaking at four thirty, finishes at two o'clock in the afternoon, the fields, goes back, feeds her brother who's handicapped, then goes back and then works as a, a teacher or like a teacher's aide at the YMCA for three hours. And she does not have a mom nor a dad. She's orphan and she's a DACA student. And I checked her GPA because we wanted to encourage her to become a teacher. And she's now starting her teaching credential. When I see students just like this, taking a full load, working more than a full time, taking care of a person with a disability and no family support because mom and dad are both dead, it is an inspiration that people can do it. People can really care. And when she shared her story in front of 230 people, some people who were not behind cameras or were not participating as much uh, got inspired, uh, felt bad that, you know, maybe they're doing something a little bit different. So we do have this type of students who hopefully will be featured um, as as an example for the rest of our students that look, don't cry that you have it hard. Other people have it harder than you. And here's an example, and they excel.
0: Yeah, and they, this is a student that, found a way, well, I have this technology with my phone where I'm going to multitask and be as focused as I can in class, but still be up this early doing, you know, working. And and like you said, then also having to take care of family members, having no one really to take care of them. And they just have like the world on their shoulders. Absolutely. Um, You know, we were talking about like perceptions. And also I think students sometimes have, certain perceptions or maybe some misconceptions of faculty, uh, where maybe they, you know, sometimes they get nervous to talk to faculty, um, don't know how to approach a faculty member, their professors. Um, how have you dealt, dealt with things like that?
5: Uh, sure, uh, students sometimes think that faculty have it easy. Mm-hmm. They don't work, they travel to Europe every, or to Hawaii, um, you know, every summer, they drive the best cars, uh, And uh, they don't care. They don't answer emails. Uh, They don't respond to phone calls. And while all of these are possibilities, there are some teachers. I think those are the the exceptions of four examples of what teachers are. Because I really believe just like our staff and our administrators, most of our teachers really care about their students. Mm. Uh, Like you said at the beginning, we are all human beings. We listen to our students, um, we share their pains, we understand their struggles, uh, and we are here to support them. Uh, I had taken it as a, um, a commitment, and I've done it every single semester since the pandemic to meet each one of my students, even in a 250-student class. Meet each one of them for 15 to 20 minutes. Some Sometimes these meetings end up being half hour. And most of the time, they're going to be following up with like two meetings or three meetings. Per students, per semester, <laughs> for all of the classes, uh, meeting 300 students in one term is a lot of time. But uh, I am not the only person. I know many other teachers really care and are interested in knowing what students have got to give and what is their story. These meetings, while we do discuss the, some of the academics, like are they struggling in the class? Is there anything that uh, you know we need to know? Uh, these meetings are an informal way to get the chance to know the students. What is your story? Tell me about your families, your hobbies, uh, you know, your dreams after you finish college, ambitions, and, of course, if you have any challenges. So I hope our students will always remember um, that just like your advising office really cares and is there to support them, just like other programs on our campus, the UOP program, um, We also teachers are human beings, we are here to listen, and we will try our best um, to address all of the needs, although sometimes unintentionally, we may miss a phone call or an email, especially if somebody sends you a phone call and leave you a message from their cell phone, when it was not, uh, you know, you cannot hear the message very well, so you cannot call them back. Um, So, uh, and, and if we did our shortcomings, and I'm sure we have a lot of shortcomings, I always ask our students, just forgive us. Be kind to us like like you want us to be kind towards you.
0: Yeah, but it's also like you're saying where, you know, you have like, let's say just one class of 250 and then you may have these other classes that you're teaching and maybe they might be smaller sizes, but altogether, that's, you know, a few hundred students that you have for that semester and then trying to meet with them as well. It also shows that you're looking at them as individuals and not just as a number or as a group. But yeah, there might be that phone call or that, that email that gets missed, but I think it's a, it's a good reminder where, you know, for students too, where, you know, hey, if, if you don't get a response back, just follow up, you know, send that second email or that phone call because if they missed it, hey, then they'll see the next one and then be able to try to try to answer answer the questions. Um, and I think just even from this, everything we've talked about so far, you know, and and, you're very humble. You know, you talk about like, you're not the only one that other professors, you know, are going to be reaching out to their students too, which is great. But also, you know, I have to mention that you also received the golden apple award, uh, and also for teaching excellence and also the CSU faculty of the year award. Um, how, how was it? How did you feel when you received those recognitions? Uh,
5: you know, you're, you're humbled. Uh, it is very, very, um, it is a big honor, and a testimonial of uh, uh, of the committees that uh, that go through all the files uh, and make very difficult selections. Because I am sure a lot of the people who get nominated are also as uh, as dedicated and qualified. Um, I'm I'm always very honored from the students who do recognize, uh, uh, you know, the hard work of their teachers. Uh, Sometimes you you know students said you know we nominated you again you can no longer be nominated because you can only get an award once which is I think a great policy so that uh, other people who are also amazing who are amazing faculty not also I'm not talking about myself but also deserves to be recognized uh, uh, it's always uh, how should we say it's always uh, <laughs> it's always good to hear what students have got to uh, to say about you and how they perceive you. Um, and students really care. Uh, you can see it sometimes. That, you know, they joke or they talk about things on 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 rating sites. You know, like rate my professors or so on. But uh, students also really care about uh, about their teachers. Uh, uh, you know, they invite them to weddings. They invite them for uh, personal events that they have graduation. Uh, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I remember in the pandemic once I was in class in the class like you know behind camera and uh, uh suddenly uh, uh, I heard the door ring and I didn't answer because it was in the pandemic uh, in the class not because of pandemic but I was in class so um the door kept ringing 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 so I, it was like a little bit too much so I said you know what let me just go open it mm-hmm. so uh So when I went and opened the door, there were about, I think, 75 or 100 cars outside my house. And there were the students, actually, who staged this whole thing to come and then parade around the house. And they were honking all over. It was a big embarrassment. And those who were behind cameras knew exactly what was happening. They had staged it at the time of class because they knew I was at home. Um, So students, uh, you know, they came and they made a whole party out of it. Um, students do recognize uh, the hard work of their teachers and their staff, and and, and we need to see that aspect. They are humans just like we are, and uh, and they are the reason why we are here. We're really there for them. If it's not, it's uh, teaching in terms of uh, monetary uh, compensation or time commitment is not is not worth it if it was not for the service that we give them. You know. You can go do so many things outside and make so much more money. So it's not for the money. It's the love, the passion, the art, and the mission of being here all together in an educational setting.
0: Now I wish I I could have seen that where you have all the students in their cars just driving up and hawking, ringing the doorbell. Ah, uh, embarrassing, sure, but also just really, really nice to to have to show you know the the respect uh, that your students have for you, which I think is truly amazing.
5: Yeah, it was funny. I mean, all the neighbors came out of their you know they were <laughs> like, "What? What's happening here?" Because I live on a cul-de-sac. I'm at the last of a cul-de-sac, so it's a very quiet street. And mm. suddenly there was like honks, balloons, decorations. <laughs> like, what's that? so uh, students are amazing just like we love them i know they they love uh, and they appreciate those who listen to them
0: yeah absolutely and outside of Cal State you know what do you do for hobbies
5: uh, yeah of course uh, outside of State you know uh, we are all overworked so mm-hmm. the but the, the very little time that uh, that i get uh, I like music. I like to play piano and, and spend time with the family. I also like gardening. Uh, while outdoors and hiking are things that I really like. Uh, I, there's just a small, you know, there's something very, uh, I would say, rewarding when you plant something and you see it grow. So mm-hmm. uh, I would say some music and then some community service is something that uh, uh, that really appeals to me. And that's what I do if there is any time off. But these days, like I think I'm sure your family tells you the same thing, and I've heard it of many teachers, that our family look at us and they say, where are you? How come you're not with us? And then it's not because we don't want to be with our family. It's just because we are so overwhelmed with work that sometimes even that little time then when you are with your family, uh, you're drawn into... uh, Thinking about the next email you have to answer or the next uh, homework or or assignment you have to bring.
0: Yeah. And what I do like, because you're mentioning playing the piano, and I know sometimes depending on what class that you're in, sometimes I know there's that one lecture class in the College of Education building that has that uh, piano keyboard in there. And so if any student's listening, (laughs) just ask Dr. Danny if if Dr. Danny can play something, and he will. He'll take time out of the class and and will play something quick.
5: We do. And you know, this classroom didn't have a piano. I learned that the music department had some uh, old keyboards in the Mm boneyard. So I went and then got it and then carried it all the way to CE105. Of course, I took permission. And this semester, my class is a new H106. And I was so happy when there was a piano. I yep. went to play for the students. And you know what? <laughs> Somebody locked that piano. It has a lock, like a big lock. Oh, no. So I am going to have to go back to maybe the music department. See, could you please unlock it or just give me a copy of the keys? Because, uh, you know, it's, we're not just having fun singing, but we're also introducing certain cultures, mm-hmm. uh, with certain songs that, that relate to the, to the topic of the class. But uh, this is how you could also engage students. we We want to take the, the we want to take the learning experience actually out of the classroom. That's why, in, you know, some of our classes actually all of them, we're either either walking to the observatory, going on a field trip, or walking to many areas on our campus, which we have a very beautiful campus, to conduct classes outside. So I I hope many students, I hope many teachers, also think about taking their students out of uh, the routine of their daily classrooms, and just go see, explore the beautiful part of the campus. As a matter of fact, uh, from our experience from the summer intensive program, students take most of their pictures when they're outdoors. So if there's a field trip, we used to take our students camping, we used to take them to the beach. And you know, they'll take on on campus maybe five, 10 pictures a day when they're in an intensive uh, program. When we take them outside the campus, they're taking two, three hundred pictures. Uh, so, so let's let's give that opportunity for the students and let's think out of the box of how may, to make uh, certain experiences really meaningful to them.
0: Yeah, perfectly said. And kind of going back with you know the like the piano thing. Uh, they also have the piano in Jack Jack Brown uh, in the lecture hall. And I remember one of the orientations that we have when we were on campus for fresh uh, first year student orientation. It, you know, it's a lot of information that we're trying to throw at these students during orientation, and I could see it on their faces. And so my colleague and I, we just took a break and said, you know, because we saw someone, one of the students on the piano before we started. So we asked them if they wouldn't mind just as we took a break to just play some music. And then you had another student that jumped in and started singing. And it was just a very fun, unique time uh, for that. And it kind of just got the students out of their routine. But I like the whole idea of going outside, Um, you know, whether it's just to get fresh air, walk around, take pictures. I mean, it's such a beautiful campus. And it's something where, you know, yeah, it gets students out of the routine of like, I'm just going to sit and just listen and be very passive. And it gets them to become a little bit more active.
5: Sure. You know, most of our students don't know we have a museum. uh, Very well worth uh, seeing that a lot of art exhibit there. And most students don't know that you have a beautiful observatory. Just the hike to the observatory, which takes about eight minutes. I, I, the reason why I say this is because when I take my students, we want to make sure that people who may not be as fit or who may have special needs are catered to. It's very easy. You only call. You have to call the police department or get a permission from the dean. doesn't just open me the gate and students could drive all the way. But for me, just the fact of walking up, is much better than just driving all the way up because it's, it's just a totally different thing. Sometimes you see snakes, you see small squirrels, you see other oh, cup of olive trees. And students never knew the beauty of our campus. Let them go to the observatory and then look, once you're there, there's like a little balcony and then you can look at it. Mm-hmm. We really have a beautiful campus and, and it's not crowded. Uh, I mean, yeah, and I don't want to compare, but let's say, I mean, like, I think Cal Poly Pomona is beautiful, but if you go to places like, I don't know, maybe I visited Cal State LA or Cal State State Long Beach. It's a very crowded campus. The parking are crowded. There's no mountain. Uh, You walk out and you're straight in the city. Here we have a whole mountain background with no real estate development on our mountains. I mean, this morning you wake up and then you have up to about 700 feet and you have all the snow behind you. What a beautiful background.
0: Oh, yeah. I, and i that was something when I drive to campus, even this morning, you know, um, it, it was a little bit of, of, of a sprinkle, but then just looking when I got get off the freeway and just, you get to see the mountains. And see this little bit of snow on there. And then, yeah, just like you're saying, just going back there. Um, I used to hike back there. And I w- I need to start going and doing it again and exercise a little bit more. But it's, it's so beautiful just to like, get off of work and go and hike in the back. And then, like you're saying, going up to the observatory. And it is such a beautiful view from there. And then just to see the campus and, like, this is where I work. And even yeah. for students, like, this is where I go to school. A beautiful, beautiful sight. And in the time remaining, do you have uh, any, a last message that, that you want to say to students?
5: Uh, you know, look, um, for anybody who listened up to here for this conversation, just know that you have an advising office that really cares about you. I've, I've heard what, how much you put time, the passion that you have, the care that you, you want, and, and then the genuine um, love to make our students succeed. So please, for all of you, uh, just know that you have a caring staff uh, and you have caring teachers. Um, and if you need any help, we do understand that you may go through special circumstances, but just come talk to us. Some of us are never going to listen to you, and some of us are going to just embrace you and say, how could we support you? Uh, we are all human beings, and this is the reality of life. We always find people are approachable and people are not. So come to us knock on the academic advising office and come to some of your teachers, Uh, we're here for you. And you know what, don't give yourself an excuse. If you ever, for all the students, if you ever get the chance to travel in some um, not as privileged areas in the United States or overseas, you will know how good we have it here in the United States. And I don't mean to be like we are not privileged people, but all what I'm saying is we do have a lot of opportunities for support. And failing or dropping out, unless they are extenuating circumstances, is almost an excuse. You can make it, we can all make it, you can graduate on time and be again a, a positive a contributing factor to our society and our community.
0: Yes, yes. And to end the episode, I'm going to end, I started with a quote from you. I'm going to end with a quote from you. And so this is something that you said with everything going on in the world. You once said, I always insist that this nation still has goodness and goodness will overtake bad decisions. And we all have common agendas for 90% of the things we care about, like clean air, affordable education, and good health. Let's focus on these things. So Dr. Danny, thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
5: Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's a big honor. And and keep doing what you're doing. Plenty of passion and a lot of professionalism. Thank you so much.
0: Danny, you are such a beacon of hope. And I've enjoyed our friendship since my admission days in the 2000s and how things have progressed uh, since I've gone into advising. You are definitely one of a kind. And I can't wait to chat to your class again. And that does it for episode 57. New episode in a couple weeks. This one will be a special one, I promise you. Follow us on our socials and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Keep advising. Take care.